This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Luigi Butera, an assistant professor of economics at Copenhagen Business School. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Measuring the Welfare Effects of Shame and Pride, which is co-authored with Rob Metcalf, William Morrison, and Dmitry Taubinsky and was published uh, in the American Economic Review uh, this year, in 2022. Luigi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jordi. Glad to be here. Could you start by telling us why we need this paper and briefly, what do you do in it? Absolutely. This paper is about providing uh, a set of tools to quantify, uh, in monetary terms, uh, the impact, the value that people place on uh, seeking pride or avoiding shame. And our methodology seeks to, uh, first, quantify that, and two, to... uh, Uh, develop tools to um, uh, make some estimations of how this pride and shame can affect uh, uh, people's welfare. The key idea is pretty simple. In the last decades, there's been a burgeoning interest in uh, using nudges that uh, leverage people's desire to seek positive image and avoid uh, shame as a mean to induce socially desirable behavior. We see that in government action, and we see also in the private sector a lot. So for instance, you can think about something like the uh, the typical example could be the uh, employee of the month type of program. Now, these policies are really desirable because they're considered to be cheaper uh, financial-wise than, for instance, uh, using using financial incentives to affect behavior. The point of our paper is simply that while the financial costs may be low, the psychic costs or psychological costs may not be. And so there's a fierce debate about whether nudges increase people's well-being by generating pride in most or generate losses in welfare because a lot of people incur shame, but there are sort of no tools to sort of quantify and have an informed discussion about the relevance of these two factors. And that's pretty much what we what we do in this paper, trying to develop a methodology to put some numbers on these uh, psychological feelings so we can uh, incorporate those effects into our welfare calculations. So I have a, a couple of reactions with what you just said. The first one uh, will be, you mentioned words like uh, shame or pride, but these are really kind of the same thing. It's just that is the utility that's associated with your performance being observed by others. Now, if that utility has a positive sign in front of it, then you call it pride. If it has a negative sign, you call it shame, but but uh, at least in your framework, it is the same force that is that is causing both. Yeah, absolutely. They're in some way two sides of the same coin. So there are a couple of ways in which you can think of those. Uh, one is that you incur pride when you do something better than some reference point, and you incur shame when you do you perform worse than some other reference point. And of course, this behavior is observed. In, in a standard model, you can think that sort of this represents a zero-sum game. That would be an assumption where the utility that people get from shame and pride is linear. In that context, of course, shame and pride will be a zero-sum game. So if you implement a policy that makes behavior visible, some people will win, you know, will receive pride because they do better than others, but, you know, sort of the other half will, will lose. Uh, and from a policy perspective, the, the net effect is zero. So in that sense, the, the policy is welfare neutral. Now, the key point to that key observation we make in, in our paper is that this is not necessarily true when you, you have utilities over shame and pride that depart linearity. So for instance, uh, if you can, uh, if you imagine the utility that people receive from having their behavior exposed uh, being concave, uh, that would imply that losses in from deriving from shame would weigh more in utility terms than gains from pride. That would mean that uh, a policy would have uh, a net negative effect because uh, the, the weight of losses, the weight of shame would be uh, higher than, um, than the gains uh, from pride. 
Equally, um, if the reference point, what is the uh, how taxing it is to look good, uh, that, that's something also that matters a lot in terms of the average net effect of, uh, of the image. And that's precisely what we do in this paper. Uh, the key idea is that we try to experimentally measure at the individual level what those utilities for social recognition look like. And precisely to be able to say something about whether image can have um, net negative effects in terms of payoffs or net positive effects. So you have this like a methodology that we're going to discuss later on, but you mentioned in the paper that the insight that um, the loss from appearing as a relatively bad performer may be high higher or lower, but not exactly identical to the gain in utility from being recognized as a, a good performer. That insight is not is not a one in your paper, but it's part of the previous uh, theoretical literature that, that, that had um, studied these things. And in some sense, it is intuitive. Like if a if there is some type of a public recognition, say employee of the month type of system, and that has uh, incentive effects that uh, encourages individuals to exert effort, then it has to follow that there is a wedge between the utility that they gain um, from being recognized as good performers and the utility that they gain as being recognized as bad performers. And this wedge doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, symmetric around zero, if you want, right? It can be um, shifted to the right of the distribution or, or the message can be not necessarily identical. So the theory tells us that the introduction of public recognition has to generate negative utility for some, positive utility for others. And then you have a, method a methodology to put dollar values on those and see what the overall welfare effect is. Yeah, absolutely. First, it's important to know uh, the shape of that utility is precisely like theory tells us that uh, some will incur shame and some will incur pride. The key question for policy is in what proportion, like how, how much weight uh, one has relative to the other. This is fine. Okay, so it's a. I agree with you that uh, the notion that this is not a zero sum, you know, is is a seems quite intuitive. It is also possible that this is co concave or convex. The overall effects are positive or negative. The question that I will have is in terms of how is it that we can aggregate the gains that are incurred by certain people and the losses that are incurred by other people. And here is like a, an analogy that I will give you. So imagine that you have like a you know a very posh uh, private school, okay, with a very, very rich children, okay, or the, the children of very rich people. And then it's very expensive, but then there is like a very small proportion of a scholarship or students that come from disadvantaged backgrounds who don't have access to tutors or whatever, they are typically on average worse at maths than the rich kids, okay? Now, so let's say that there are 25 of the rich and high performers, only five of the poor and low performers, and now imagine that you introduce this public recognition program, okay? And you just tell you are going to reveal only whether you're above the average or not. Average, not median, okay? So it turns out that the 25, 25 rich kids are above the average. The five poor kids are below the average. You reveal this, you measure the gain of the 25 added together is, is bigger than the loss by the five. To me, a simple sum will not necessarily feel like the right way to aggregate these utilities because they are incurred by people who are not necessarily identical. Let me say it in a different way. The, in economics, there is a, a big tradition of Pareto improvement notions. Yes, unless something is, is 
is Pareto improvement, we cannot say that it is better than something else. And this is because adding utilities across individuals doesn't feel right because we don't know the characteristics of these individuals. Here, if you introduce a public recognition program and the winners are different from the losers, it is not clear that you can add those gains and losses together and come up with a final number. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really fair point and I think points precisely in the direction of uh, we need to measure those things more, more often, which is the key which is the key point of this paper. First of all, uh, how can we measure those effects? So of course, the question of uh, you know, assigning different weights to different individuals, depending on individual characteristics, that of course is, a, is an important question, open question. There's a, there's a lot of work that shows, of course, that uh, the proportion of different individuals uh, matter. This is part perhaps of some sort of follow-up uh, research on, on this. Like we, we take one step back and, and ask a question, sort of how can we, how can we measure uh, in the first place? Now, the other thing I want to add is that in many situations, it's not really clear ex ante whether any given public recognition intervention would ever generate shame. Well, let me give you an example. Suppose that you have a context where, which is one of the contexts in which we uh, we test our methods as charitable giving. Um, it's psychological theory does does make important distinctions about the um, about the existence, of course, of shame and pride, but does doesn't provide us with guidance on when pride should necessarily be experienced. So, if I give two dollars to charity, uh, it's not necessarily true that that action would should generate, in principle, any shame because donating anything above zero might be seen as a commendable behavior. And so uh, that, that's why we think it's really important to really test them quantify those effects because we have lo very little guidance about when, uh, if ever, shame and pride uh, would, would arise. So the other thing that I wanted to mention uh, following your uh, initial uh, summary of what you do in the paper is that you started with the words, we provide a set of tools or a methodology. The emphasis, therefore, in the contribution is in the methodology, as opposed to maybe necessarily the actual populations to which in this specific paper you apply this methodology to. Yeah, I think that's a fair description. That, that's why we applied our methods to two different contexts, uh, as I, we will talk certainly in a few minutes. One, the context of uh, exercising, so going to the gym, and uh, and one context about, about charitable giving. You have uh, a theoretical framework that I don't really want to get into too much detail, but you have like a main prediction that comes from this uh, theoretical framework, which you have already mentioned, but I want to discuss in a little bit more detail so that it is uh, clearer. The prediction is that the net image payoffs that arise from introducing this type of like public recognition program, that is transparency on the performance of individuals, are going to uh, be negative when the function that converts inferences about behavior is concave. That is when the winners that are on the right of the distribution uh, win less than the losers who are on the left of the distribution uh, lose. Can you give us like an intuition as to why that is the case? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, this this intuition is not really, I have to say to, uh, for honestly, not our merit, it just derives uh, straightforwardly from Jensen inequality. The key idea is that there are two factors that affect uh, um, the, the impact of, of image. One one is, as you pointed out, the, the, the shape of the utility that maps from visibility into utils. 
The key intuition is that concavity implies that people are much more sensitive to the left tail of, of that function, which means that sort of losses experienced through shame uh, have higher marginal impact on utility than uh, gains from, uh, from pride. So imagine a concave function is a little bit like the intuition when, when you think about wealth and decreasing marginal utility. Uh, you know, getting 100 bucks if you're Donald Trump is very different than getting 100 bucks if you are if you're not poor. So conversely, uh, convexity, on the other hand, implies that the gains experienced uh, from those that experience uh, experience pride uh, are uh, much much larger than uh, than the losses that that are incurred uh, from shame. Now, this is a general result, and of course, you may wonder how big these effects are. And we discuss in the paper um, that uh, sort of the magnitude of this sort of deadweight loss, um, if for deriving from concavity, depends transparently on the, how coarse the recognition uh, intervention is. So in our experiments, we use, uh, as we will discuss, we use a setting where everyone's behavior is completely visible. Now, you may say, of course, that many interventions that we observe around the world, the one you mentioned before with kids, um, often advertise only uh, people at the top of the distribution. So for instance, you can imagine a recognition program uh, that only says, uh, uh, only publicly advertise the top 10 uh, donors or the top 10 uh, performance. Now, of course, the magnitude of the deadweight loss would be different, but the kind of intuition is that with concavity, the deadweight loss would be small, of course, because uh, only good performance are advertised. Uh, but if you are in uh, sort of the left part, for you, uh, you would rather be in a world where no one can draw any inference about you because there is no recognition at all versus a world where people can draw inference that you're not part of the top. So you have mentioned a couple of times the experiments, that methodology that uh, is the, at the core of the paper. Let's start with the experiment that you ran on the YMCA uh, members. Can you describe how does this experiment work and how it allows you to infer these gains and losses? Absolutely. So we were lucky enough to partner with the YMCA of the Triangle, which is the, uh, the YMCA in North Carolina. And at that time, the Y was interested in expanding participation of their uh, members to, uh, to their activities. So what we did is create a program that the Y called uh, Grow and Thrive, where members were invited and joining a one-month-long program in which if participants join, every day of attendance would generate charitable donations uh, to the YMCA made by an anonymous donor. Okay, so participants had to actively join when they were invited through an email to join this program that would last one month. Now, um, everybody gets, so everybody who joins this program gets uh, this uh, donation incentive. So every day uh, you go to the gym, generates donations to charity. Now, the key is that uh, when we invite people to join the program, people had to go through a survey. And that's the main uh, sort of touch point where we estimate people's value of public recognition. So what we do is the following. In the sign-up survey, we inform participants that everyone who joins this program would get the charity uh, incentives. But we we also tell them that there is a chance that they might be randomized in a second program, which we call the, the public recognition program. And the way we frame it to, to participants, the way the program works is simply that some participants would be eligible randomly to receive at the end of the Grow and Thrive program, a thank you email that will list their attendance to the YMCA during the program, as well as the attendance of everyone else in that program. So essentially it's framed in, of course, in a positive way as a, as a token of appreciation on, in joining this program. Uh, and participants know that they may or may not be part of this program. Now, the key is that we want to elicit the value that people place on, on being part of this program. So here's what we do. 
We tell participants that with 90% chance, they will be assigned to either be part of the social recognition program or not by a coin toss. However, we give them with 10% chance the option to determine whether they would be part of this program. And we do it in the following way. We tell participants in the survey, so this is still happening, everything is happening before the, the experiment begins. We tell them, uh, tell us today whether based on uh, possible, for every possible attendance that you may have in during the month of, of Growing Thrive. So you can imagine, you know, from going zero times to going 30 times, which of course is the maximum number of days for, for that particular month. Uh, tell us whether you would like to be uh, seen or not. And with that 10% chance, why this is not incompatible? So we say, uh, let's say Luigi ends up going zero times, then uh, we, the researchers with 10% chance, we're gonna look at your decision corresponding to zero. So imagine that, so what participants did is, so if you go zero time, would you like to be part of this program or not? That's the first part. So we elicit an initial preference for a visibility. Now we wanna get at the intensity, some monetary value, and here how we do. With still the 10% chance, participants not only would choose their participation to the program, but they would also get a, a gift card, an Amazon gift card for them to keep. Now, they can, however, use part of these potential gains to increase the, the increase or decrease the probability that they would be visible or not um, for every possible outcomes in the future. So again, imagine that you ask, uh, you say, Jordi, do you want to be uh, in the program if you end up going zero times? And possibly you would say, mm, zero doesn't look very good. I would rather not. And how much are you willing to pay from zero to $10, for instance, to make sure that you're truly not seen by anyone else? And here we use a BDM or second price option with the essential idea is that the more you bid, the more you go away from a zero payment, the more you increase, the more you move away from a 50-50 chance of uh, being uh, being either recognized or not. So if you pay a lot, you're essentially guaranteeing that your favorite choice at the specific potential future attendance uh, is implemented. Now, this seems a little bit complicated, but it has two fundamental advantages. Number one, uh, we are uh, able to uh, sort of transparently quantify the value that people place for avoiding shame or seeking pride at different possible future attendance over the span of the, the action uh, possible, right? So that, that sort of starts giving you an intuition of like, uh, what does shape look like, the shape of that utility function? The second advantage is that um, one alternative and that has been used in the past the approach is to just ask how much you want to pay to be part of this program, pure, pure, period. Just asking one question, how much you're willing to pay. Now, the tricky part of asking only one question is that the value that people will give you confounds the value that people place on recognition with possible overconfidence that people might have about their future behavior, right? Um, and so the advantage of having what the strategy method, essentially, where we ask you value for recognition, not on what you think you will do, but for every possible scenario, avoids that, that issue. Now, I just also want to mention that we, um, uh, so this sort of design strikes balance between two needs. One is that that we want most people to be randomized into the experiment because, of course, we want to be able to draw causal inference about the effect of uh, recognition. So 90% of participants uh, are actually assigned uh, to either public recognition or not a random. But everyone, 100%, uh, does respond to those questions. So we have their the preferences for social recognition for everyone. 
And the second advantage is that 10%, so it's a really tiny chance of your, a small chance for your choice to matter, helps also in terms of uh, um, the inference that other people might draw about your behavior. So because the chance that you um, uh, are assigned or not to social recognition based on your choice is small, people could not really anticipate and try to game the system. So for instance, maybe you don't want to be recognized, but then you think, well, if I'm not on the list and everyone thinks that not being on the list means that I try to hide, then uh, I might not have an incentive to truthfully report. And so that's kind of strikes the balance between these two. This is incredibly complicated. Now, I am admittedly not somebody who does experimental work. So I don't have like a firsthand knowledge of how these things are run. And after reading this section a few times, I understand that from a theoretical perspective, you are eliciting perfectly well everybody's willingness to appear or not appear in the list, uh, given the inferences that make and everything, provided that they understand all these like long set of instructions that, that uh, you have given, some of which are not even in the main body of the paper. Because you refer, for instance, to BDM, which is Becker, DeGroote, Marshak. It's some type of system by which there is like a, a random number that appears. And if your the dollar that you have uh, offered to give is higher than that random number, then your choice is implemented. Otherwise, it is not. What I mean to say is, I think there is no chance that the participants in this experiment really understood how, what every, how everything was going on and, and and what were they supposed to do at every point in time? Now, it is possible that this doesn't matter. It is possible that in the lab experiment or maybe even field experiment literature, the fact that the participants don't understand things perfectly well is not a big issue because you have like big numbers and they will make mistakes, but some of them will be positive, some of them will be negative. And broadly speaking, the average are more or less correct as if, you know? Or it is, it is possible that this is not the case. So because this is your type of literature, let me ask you, is it normal in this type of literature to have instructions that, that the, the participants are not necessarily going to understand, but that makes sense from a theoretical perspective and that when you aggregate, more or less are supposed to capture the way that people who were able to solve these models will behave? Yeah, that, that's a fair point. And uh, we did quite a bit of uh, sort of piloting to, to try to narrow down the best language. Uh, um, so first of all, of course, the, that the, the mechanism behind uh, it, it's complex. What we did, which is very standard in the literature, is provide, of course, uh, details about the mechanism but also encourage essentially encourage participants and, and, and inform that it, it is in their best interest to answer truthfully. Now, participants may not fully understand, perhaps, uh, as you claim, uh, the, the full intricacy of a, of a BDM mechanism, but it seems across our four studies that uh, participants pretty well understand the idea that uh, different performance uh, are worthy of being hidden or worthy of being seen, and that there's some sense of intensity uh, that is conveyed by this monetary payment. So there seems to be a, a, a quite robust, uh, and you may be surprised, uh, understanding of that. So uh, of course, you know, there's always a question in experimental methods, what, whether this is the best way to do. There, there is some evidence, uh, there's uh, some recent papers also in the developing world that shows that um, these type of elicitation procedures that essentially allow you to capture intensity preferences are well understood, uh, if explained in simple terms with something that people can grasp, of course, without math, uh, are understood not only in a the educated population that you may have in Raleigh, North Carolina, but also in the developing context of some uh, uh, relatively less educated individuals. So 
there's quite a bit of evidence that despite the method is complicated, if it is explained uh, in, in simple enough terms, intuitive terms, then uh, they're quite successful in capturing what they try to capture. But, uh, but we were worried as much as you were. Uh, I wish that I had been a participant so that somebody had explained it to me in simple terms so that I you know, may have taken less time to understand it. But uh, let me then uh, ask you about this first experiment. What do you find? What are the baseline uh, results? Yeah, so first we find that, unsurprisingly, consistent with essentially uh, all the literature on public recognition, also in our context, we find that public recognition has a causal effect on uh, attendance to the YMCA. Uh, we find that about um, public recognition increases attendance by about uh, 17%. So it's quite a sizable effect. Quite surprising, not quite surprising, but you may argue, if your argument is correct, that you would expect that uh, people don't understand and just say, I don't want to pay money for something I don't understand. Instead, we find that the vast majority of individuals have non-zero willingness to pay for public recognition. So for the YMCA sample, which is our first experiment, this amounts to about 93%. So about 93% of people who has positive willingness to pay to either opt in or opt out of public recognition for some level of performance. Sure. So let me let me just interrupt you here. They are going to give you a dollar value for how much they want to appear in the list or not appear in the list for Depending every on, possible yes. number of times that they attend. Of course, we don't ask 30 times because it might, it might have been uh, extremely taxing. So what we do is we collect in, in intervals. In in intervals. intervals. Yes. yes. What you're saying is that 7% of people give give zero, the answer of zero for every level of attendance. Correct. 93% of people give a number different from zero for at least one level of attendance. That is correct. Yes. Then uh, our third result is that we find that willingness to pay varies with performance. So this is kind of uh, comes straightforward from uh, uh, leading models of social signaling, like the Naboo and Tyrol model or Androni and Doug Bernheim models, but it's not necessarily a robust implication from psychological theory. Again, as I said before, uh, you could imagine that, uh, you know, raising money for the YMCA, doing something good, uh, even small amounts might be considered something uh, desirable. So we find that um, people incur uh, significantly negative payoffs, uh, those who are in the in the bottom quartile of the distribution of performance, and individuals instead on the um, on the top quartile receive this um, their, their positive payoffs. Um, but here, when you talk about significant, you are using the word significant in a statistical sense. Uh, I, I emphasizing this because the actual number of dollars that they are willing to pay struck me as relatively low. Uh, that is, in the uh, lowest quartile, they are willing to pay $3 for not appearing. These are not like in themselves big numbers. Of course, maybe the intervention is I mean, relatively, relatively small. I don't know how rich these people are, but these are not like a, you know, from an economic perspective, $3 is less than the price of a coffee. So it's not like a, an enormous an enormous welfare implication that comes from this population. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is partly determined by the stakes that were offered to them. So these are relatively small stakes, uh, uh, around uh, around $10 of, of money you, you can play around with. Again, the, the key intuition, though, is that the stakes might be small. I think the most important question, I guess the most interesting pers- uh, question is whether uh, sort of uh, are we truly capturing sort of if, if this monetary value capturing anything that is meaningful um, right? Is this capturing anything that, that, that kind of makes sense? And um, and we can show, we show it actually in the paper that both with the YMCA sample and especially with our second experiment, um, actually 
these uh, monetary in, uh, sort of uh, payments for social recognition are incredibly close to the effect of financial incentives that would have on on uh, on behavior. So tell me about this second set of experiments. Yeah, we set out to run a second set of experiments. This time is not a field experiment. Is is our three online experiments and where. Participants were uh, asked to raise money for the Red Cross. And they were asked to raise money through the Red Cross through a simple task that's been used in the literature before, which consists of clicking two pair of uh, keystroke on your keyboard. Essentially, the more you click, uh, the more money uh, you, you generate for, for, for charity. We, uh, we have, uh, differently from YMCA, we have a within sub design to maximize our power. And in our experiment, people play uh, sort of three sequential games of this basic structure clicking. In one game, people play the game raising money for charity anonymously. So no one uh, sees uh, their performance. In one game, uh, the money is raised publicly. So mirroring the YMCA setting, their performance is visible to others. And then we have um, one condition that is still in private, that not only people in private are raising money for charity, but also raising money for themselves. Uh, so one key feature that was missing in our charitable experiment, uh, sorry, in our YMCA experiment was that we, we didn't have a treatment arm where people were given money to them to go to the gym. And that was part of sort of, uh, um, sort of our agreement with the why that, that, that thought that um, it might have sort of given the wrong impression of competitiveness and, and that's that was not kind of the message they wanted to uh, they wanted to do so um, so we run the second set of experiments where we now we also have a financial metric to determine how much behavior changes with uh, financial incentives and then mirroring sort of the the first experiment uh, uh, exactly as in the first experiment that sign up people were told that there was you know a small chance that they could that their decisions in the the in the pre survey determine their uh, their attendance uh, sorry their, their visibility so exactly in the same way so you can imagine with uh, you know one third of probability uh, they would be assigned to not being seen by anyone, so those choices would matter, or uh, anonymity, but with payments for you, public recognition, or with a small chance, uh, they, they would choose their own visibility. And this is done in a way that uh, the performance would actually be drawn randomly from one of the three uh, games to guarantee that um, uh, we, we don't front load incentives on, on one of the three conditions relative to the other to, uh, to exert effort. So we, we parallel what, what we did in the, in, in the YMCA experiment, uh, but this experiment provides us uh, some additional sort of insights. So first of all, of course, th this paper sort of points out to the methodology. So we, we really wanted to test our approach in a, in a, in a different setting. So we're moving from the world of uh, exercising to the move of charitable giving, but it's still a relevant policy domain when you think about public recognition. I mean, every every uh, charity, you know, the visibility of charities is something really, uh, really common. Second, we wanted to uh, to test whether the familiarity that people may have between each other may have an effect on their, um, uh, their uh, social recognition utility, right? So you can imagine that the value you place on being seen or not being seen may vary a lot, whether you're uh, the relevant population that observes you is a bunch of people you don't know, uh, a bunch of people or a, a bunch of your classmates, for instance. So we run exactly the same experiment I just told you in three different um, settings. One is Prolific, which is a platform that has been increasingly used to run online experiments. And in this setting, it's almost likely, uh, almost sure that people didn't know each other. Um, 
Then we run the experiment at the uh, Berkeley Experimental Lab, where there's a little bit more chance that uh, people may know each other, still low. And then three, we run the, the sort of third sample among uh, um, one section of um, one section of uh, students at Boston University, where now we're sure that uh, participants knew each other uh, for sure. Um, the uh, the other thing that we vary relative to the first experiment is that we also randomize the, the size, the group size, so the expected number of people that if you're recognized would see your performance. And we thought that was important because there are two sort of countervailing effects when you increase the, the number of people that see you. On the one hand, image becomes stronger. There are a bunch of people that look at you. But on the other hand, the your individual visibility decreases a lot. Imagine you being, you know, just one among five people versus being one among a million, of course. Um, this is and- not necessarily in the theory, but it's a... You know, like some uh, type of uh, intuition about how yeah, absolutely. people infer uh, absolutely. are able to, to remember who was in what list at the bottom or at the top and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly correct. And uh, and the other difference is that something that I didn't mention earlier is that, um, of course, in, in the YMCA experiment, uh, uh, we, we wanted to set, uh, you know, in some way uh, expectations of what is the average behavior. And so what we did is we, before people... Um, could uh, sort of elicit their willingness to pay. We told them what was the average attendance to the YMCA for the whole uh, group. So not not just those that participate in the experiment, but for the year previous year, what was the average attendance to the Y? So to sort of set uh, again, if you go back to the model where you compare yourself to some reference point, uh, that was kind of a natural way to sort of provide some reference. Um, what we did in a in the charity experiment instead is run some pilots and then provide a more comprehensive uh, statistics about previous behavior. So we just don't provide the mean, but we provide the media, the 25th percentile, 75th. So to really provide the whole distribution, people could actually see the whole distribution of past behavior. So they could form their own expectations about what represents a sort of a commendable behavior. And what do you find with these new experiments? Broadly speaking, the findings are, I mean, the findings that are comparable to the YMCA experiment are are similar? Yeah, we do find some uh, similarities and, uh, and and some differences. Precisely as for the, um, the, the YMCA experiment, we also find in this context a, a strong uh, effect of uh, public recognition on behavior, which is uh, quite consistent in terms of magnitude uh, to, um, to the behavior of, of the YMCA sample. We find, as the first experiment, uh, that people sort of at the bottom of the performance distribution incur losses. So uh, they incur negative payoffs, image payoffs from uh, from visibility, and people at the top uh, receive. So there's this, the same sort of uh, uh, sort of monotonically increasing relationship between performance and behavior. Um, what we find is a little bit more mixed results when it comes to the, the shape of the recognition uh, function. We find a markedly concave function for our prolific sample. And for the other two samples, BU and, um, and Berkeley, we cannot reject neither linearity, non-concavity. So it really points to the importance of, you know, measuring these things. Different contexts may deliver, you know, uh, different estimates, but uh, we, we think that that was, a, uh, that was an important and, and, useful, um, and useful exercise. So one other thing that I will say uh, is similar in terms of the findings from these uh, lab experiments and the findings from the YMCA experiments is that, again, the stakes are pretty low. That is, statistically, they are significant, but for instance, in the prolific sample, which is 
is the, the biggest sample that, that you have. The willingness to pay for not having your performance revealed among the people who are going to perform the lowest is just half a dollar. So this is relatively, relatively small. Obviously, this is, you know, actually, this is like the first lab experiment that I have discussed here in the, in the podcast, not, not an area that I am very familiar with, but Therefore, I'm very glad that you started the discussion by saying that the emphasis here was on the methodology rather than on the intrinsic interest of these of these samples of of individuals. Because yeah, the the samples of you know mostly undergraduates or or other type of uh, online people. And even the sample of the YMCA are not, you know, so intrinsically interesting. Absolutely. Uh, by yeah. themselves. And, and the, the findings are not, are super high. So then my question then would be, so imagine that, imagine that I am the manager of a company and I am reading this paper and I'm thinking, okay, does that mean that that uh, I should implement this program in my company or not? Putting aside the methodology for the time being, the question would be how do these uh, welfare effects of shame and pride scale to other settings that are more important in which the workers may know each other even better than in your BU sample? Mm-hmm. and. If I think that they are going to, you know, scale by an order of magnitude, then I really have to worry about this. But whether the effects are, statistically speaking, positive or negative, if I think that they are going to be equivalent to a couple of dollars, then I don't have to worry too much about it. And it is this translation from the population that you have here to other settings that will be, again, putting aside the methodology, will be the real question here. Yeah, I think this is sort of a two-part question. Uh, so the, the first sort of to get out of the way, your, your, your first question about uh, what uh, you might call uh, horizontal scaling, like how... Uh, results translate uh, into a different settings, you're absolutely right. So uh, precisely, we point towards the importance of um, of measuring those effects. I, I think the big sort of takeaway of this uh, paper is that these things matter. Uh, and uh, and so th- there is a lot of value and a lot of uh, importance in, in exactly measuring those welfare effects because they're they're non-trivial. Now, on the scale, of course, like we, we scale our experiments, especially the, the online experiments relative to what is the average sort of payout for, for those experiments. So everything was scaled uh, with respect to either prolific sample, which is what on average a person that joins those um, those samples would do. And of course, it was that we scaled it differently for, for the other populations, who of course, people are paid more uh, in the lab. So uh, sort of your first uh, sort of to your first question about horizontal scalings what i have to say is that you're absolutely right so we should as with any study be very careful in extrapolating uh, sort of inference for other setting uh, but again the beauty I, I think of of our approach that it's it's easily exportable to other setups which may vary in a number of parameters not not just the stakes but maybe uh, the the reference point how taxing it is to look good you may have some environments where, where to look good, you just need to be uh, better than the average. But in some other environments, which is something, for instance, we see in the Boston uh, University sample where people know each other, actually to incur positive payoffs, you need to do better than the average. The standard for pride uh, is actually a little bit more taxing. Um, so there's definitely importance and, and, and need uh, for more studies like ours. Now, Back to the methods, I think your argument that these are small stakes, I think it makes sense. I mean, uh, you you could argue that for any type of experiments, even like large scale experiments, you can always argue that 
you know, a large scale field experiment could have paid people $1,000 or $10,000. I think what I want to point out is that uh, really the key here, the key question here is the following. Is our approach, is our method, so monetizing public recognition, truly capturing the effect that public recognition has on behavior? That's, I think, the key sort of question anyone skeptical about this paper should have in mind, right? What are, are we capturing something that is real? And I just want to give you one example from one of the four, uh, one of our four samples, but this applies to the others as well, is that it seems definitely to be the case. So let me give you one example. So for the uh, prolific sample, so one of the three char charity experiments, we find that a 10-point increase in performance, so remember a performance is a pairwise clicks, uh, an increase in 10 points, it corresponds to a zero, uh, about, about 0.93 cents increase in willingness to pay for public recognition, right? So 10% more points implies a 0.93 higher willingness to pay. Now, this implies that the motivating effect of public recognition should be approximately equivalent to a financial incentive of 0.93 cents per 10 points, right? But now remember that we have uh, experiments where we have some treatments where people are actually paid to increase their behavior. So we can naturally compare how, of course, by local linear extrapolation, but that's so we can we can actually compare is a financial incentive of ninety three cents comparable to to uh, to the effect of willingness to pay and we do find a remarkable uh, similarity. Uh, this is not just across the sample but many samples, which which really points to the idea that this is we're not just capturing something weird like people you know giving random numbers or people not really understanding the task, uh, but this is really capturing sort of the the effect of public recognition. This is a meaningful way to capture the effect that public recognition has on on, on behavior. Which is which is great because of course welfare means a lot of things. Uh, but um, you know if we want to sort of credibly sort of uh, include a, a psychic costs in 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 a parsimonious and yet tractable way, well monetizing those effects is 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 a way to go. And it seems like our approach is doing a fair a fair job at doing that. I'm I'm very glad that you made the comparison with financial incentives because just general and and I don't think that this is an issue of this paper or even of the lab experiment literature, just broadly speaking, maybe an issue about the way that we report our findings in economics is that we tend to report the findings in qualitative terms rather than referring to them as elasticities. Absolutely. And I think that this is this makes it really hard to understand what is going on. Now, you made this comparison. Uh, you, my public recognition is equivalent to paying them, I don't exactly remember what you said, but 0.93 mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. I would argue that even you... And as I said, definitely you did it very well in, in creating the comparison, but even you are not providing elasticities because we don't know the intensity of the public recognition either. Or we don't have a scale there. So imagine that instead of revealing that list with the names of people, we had made the low performers wear a donkey hat, you know, and the high performers wear a crown, right? That will be that will be also public recognition, but the intensity of the team will be so much will be so much larger. And there Point ninety a comparison with point ninety three will not seem you know as strong in terms of the relative effect of public recognition because we are really providing a very high intensity of treatment on the public recognition front. Yeah, absolutely. This matter of comparison is really important. And uh, the, the way we tackle in the paper is trying to provide some uh, uh, essentially ways to compare uh, what we call the intensity that otherwise you could call the curvature of the utility. And uh, one, one statistic that we report, which I think does this job pretty well, is uh, essentially mimicking in the risk literature, the cost of relevant risk aversion parameter. We can we sort of construct that uh, this ratio between the second order 
pattern of first order derivative and multiply by the standard deviation of behavior in each experiment. So that kind of gives us sort of a unitless measure of curvature. And that can allow us to compare, as you said, sort of apple to apples, right? Because the different settings are very different. One is, a, is an experiment with charity with different payoffs. The other one is an experiment with the, uh, with the YMCA. And overall, what we find is that the, uh, the, the YMCA and prolific samples are, are very similar in terms of this unitless uh, measure of curvature. And, and that is sort of a measure that abstracts from the intensity of the effect, what you were mentioning, the intensity effect on behavior that takes it into account by multiplying by the standard deviation. And in, in, in our other two samples, Berkeley and, and, and BU, as I said before, we can sort of neither reject uh, the linearity, but we, can't, we cannot also reject that the degree of curvature is different from these other two samples. The last question that I wanted to ask you is in terms of the portability of this approach. Again, you put out of emphasis on the fact that, you know, we can take like this uh, set of uh, instructions with a BVM and and then we have 90% so that they cannot infer that they were trying to hide their performance if the name doesn't appear. You know, like all all these things that you uh, discussed. Now, you apply it to populations that are relatively easy to manipulate because you are you are paying them, uh, you know, yourself. So therefore, you can, you know, tell them to do whatever you want to do. How do you think that this approach would work if I was trying to move it to other settings in which that are more natural, in which perhaps the researcher has less control over, you know, the, the um, ability to infer information from the participants? and so on. Or let me put it in cruder terms. If I'm thinking about charity contributions, how much will you have to pay the sacklers, you know, to get them to remove their name from the new wing in the British Museum, right? Because as experimenter, probably you don't have enough money to, you know, to, to convince them to participate in this type of a, uh, inference process because they are much richer than you are. Uh, sure. I mean, any methodology has, you know, uh, limitations. If you if you want to run an experiment on billionaires, you probably have a hard time getting a, a large sample size, and that of course applies. Of course, I give you an extreme example. Of course. Yeah, also th- that is that is tricky. I mean, it, it, in that sense, of course, like, the portability is is a function of you know how much leeway you have to measure things. I mean, I, I think that this is a fair criticism that I think on the other hand applies to uh, any uh, tool that we use to you know get information on parameters we care about. Like think about risk aversion, for instance. That's that's kind of the same idea. It's really, uh, um, it's really, uh, it's really hard if you can't. Uh, so I, I think on the, on the one hand, of course, you know, scaling to settings where you know, uh, rich, very rich people, very few individuals, there it's going to be much more challenging. Uh, um, but 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 uh, um, but other settings, as I mentioned before, like these methods are widely used in developing countries. So. Uh, we don't think that one relevant access whether we should worry is, for instance, education or, or understanding. There are ways to make these techniques, you know, can be adapted to be understandable by uh, by, by everyone. And, and, and I think there's quite compelling evidence in that. Now, the, the other dimension of scaling, which is what we do in the last part of the paper, and if we have two minutes, I, I just want to briefly mention, is that in the one sense, there is this question of scaling horizontally, which is what we've been talking about, like how do we export uh, inference from one setting to another? But there's a more fundamental question, which is, uh, which is kind of, a, I think, one of the very cool part of our, sort of our approaches, which is called the idea of vertical scaling. And the idea of vertical scaling is that, of course, uh, all the estimates we get about net image payoffs, which is, uh, you know, 
our participants participating in this experiment. And then, uh, you know, Jordi provide, you provide me with your schedule for willingness to pay, but then your actual realized behavior is say three times attendance. So your image payoff is your willingness to pay at three, right? For me, if I go zero times, uh, uh, I can look at what was my willingness to pay at zero. And that transparently is my image payoff from actually uh, going zero time condition, of course, both of us being seen by others. Okay. So we, all, all we get from, from this is partial equilibrium estimates, right? But now, of course, the policymaker wants to know, wow, you found these effects, uh, you know, uh, this and that. So what would happen if you were to scale this intervention? And that's what we do in the last part of the, the, the study, because especially for public recognition, depending on the type of model you use, uh, scaling might be important. Let me just give you an intuition uh, for, for that. Suppose that you were attending the YMCA um, six times, okay, during the experiment, and and say that the average behavior, the average attendance was say four, okay. So you're two times, you're going twice, uh, two attendance more than than the average, uh, and let's say that you receive positive utility from that. So image payoffs are good. You you look, you, this is good for you now. What happens when you scale up? Well, if the intervention works, which we show in our experiment works, it, it does increase behavior, right? People go more often to the gym, right? So now the more you, you expand this program, the more people will work harder to look good. And so that might completely happen that when you scale up this program, now the average behavior may perhaps move from four to eight. And now all of a sudden, your payoff of six, like you were going six times, now all of a sudden you're experiencing shame, right? So in the last part of the paper, what we show is that we can take our reduced form estimates for the utility function, uh, for the utility for social recognition, which is what we get from the experimental sample, and then structurally estimate it um, in, uh, by using um, sample from uh, the whole population, which is data we had for for the, the YMCA, which allows us also to so first estimate the uh, the general population um, recognition function, um, and and this is um, this is something quite cool too. It allows us to estimate uh, structurally the the reference point, so how hard it is to look good or, or not. And then it allows us to make some important sort of exercises to say, what would be a scale, the effect on image, if the utility was more similar to the YMCA, for instance, or if it was closer to the BU sample, for instance. Um, and so, for instance, I think what, what is interesting, what we find is that for the YMCA sample in Boston University, which are, uh, if you want, the, the, the samples where it is more likely that people know each other, because um, these are classmates at BU and, um, and people that go to the same gym, uh, we find this sort of um, reference parameter to be greater than one, which essentially just means that it's not enough to do uh, like the average. You need to do a little bit better to enjoy, uh, to enjoy the, um, pride. And it, it, what we find is instead in samples where uh, people are likely not to know each other, the actual sort of threshold for pride is much lower. So you don't actually need to be as good as the average. Um, and then we can conduct a series of interesting exercises of counterfactual exercises asking uh, what would be the effect of scale if the YMCA population, instead of having utility as the one we infer from the YMCA sample had say utility from the BU sample. And I think of course numbers vary, I think the biggest insight from that is that the reference standard, so the standard at which you flip, you know, how hard it is to receive pride, uh, does generate much more variation in the net effects of image than variations in curvature. Uh, and we thought that was was kind of interesting. But again, th this allows us to sort of think a little bit more seriously about how, you know, different structural forms or different preferences may lead to either gains or, uh, or losses. Our estimates, if we take the estimates we have for the YMCA experiments and we look at our structural estimates for that, well, what we see is that um, if we take those parameters at face value, then um, at scale, 
the, the, the social recognition is likely to create a negative image payoffs, also at scale, not just at the impartial uh, uh, partial equilibrium. Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Luigi, for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was really exciting and fun. Uh, my guest today has been Luigi Butera. My name is Jordi Blanesividad, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Etana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. 